Kierkegaard calls this faith against the understanding. But he is also riding in the shadow of another philosopher, Hegel, who was a towering figure in the history of philosophy, and still is to this day. But Kierkegaard wants to address something that he thinks Hegel does not understand. Faith. He doesn't understand faith precisely because he understands faith, or rather is critical of it. In other words, because he views faith through rational categories alone, he doesn't get it. As there is a mystery in our relationship with God, there are things and events that the divine has control of that are just beyond human It's kind of like that passage in Philippians and in the Book of Common Prayer, where it says, Give us that peace which surpasses understanding. But the value of silence should not be lost here. It shouldn't be lost because in the silence God speaks. Has that ever happened to you? Where in the silence is God speaking to you today? While swimming in the ocean? While meditating? While playing an instrument? While speaking another language? And what is God saying? Of course, as we know in the reading, Right before the sacrifice happens, the ram appears, and Abraham is led off the hook and commanded to stop and sacrifice the ram instead. But the astounding thing is that Abraham can do exactly what God commands of him, even if this means taking Isaac's life. But I wonder about God's words and how they may have transformed Abraham while he contemplated. Hospital chaplains are often encouraged to lean into Jesus' words when, when an event feels too tragic, like when experiencing a death. It's like Jesus' words have already built within them a mysterious metaphysical power that can make things happen. But we can't empirically prove that. Abraham's conviction, though, relies on what Kierkegaard calls the strength of the absurd. That is, this is the one time when God asks someone to destroy someone that God is depicted as having brought into existence. The absurd aspect, and why Kierkegaard calls Abraham the father of faith is because he believes he will get Isaac back even if he sacrifices him. Also, and more foundationally, he is obedient to God's command. Need extraordinary, but so is God's once-in-time request. And given the passages before this, with Hagar and Ishmael, having been exiled into the wilderness by Abraham and Sarah. You might think that Yahweh is serving Abraham and Sarah 
Imagine the anguish of Abraham of having to put, the, put to death the only son he and Sarah ever had, and in their later years, no less. Imagine the paralyzing guilt Abraham might have anticipated after the sacrifice, and yet he still plodded up the mountain Moriah in spite of everything he was thinking and feeling. Imagine Abraham remembering the absolute and beautiful miracle of Isaac's birth, now to be extinguished, immolated, in humiliating duration. And finally, imagine the horror and heartbreak when Abraham sees Isaac's face the moment Isaac realizes that he is the one that will be sacrificed, not the lamb. In that moment, did Abraham think God was crazy? Did he think that this was actually the devil pulling a trick on him and he was believing it? Kierkegaard calls Abraham a knight of faith because he has an infinite resignation to do as God instructs. So his ultimate motivation is grounded in spirit. Still, the silence must have been teeming with human emotion, human thought, and human memory. You could argue, though, that the reason behind the test was to see if Abraham's faith up until the command to sacrifice Isaac was really about serving himself. However, the would-be sacrifice effectively nullifies that doubt, because without Isaac, there are no descendants. So in these moments, Abraham is truly selfless and God-centered. I think about the unwavering focus he must have had, and I think this was so, because the channel between God's will and Abraham's was disillusioned. That his heart and mind had silenced any need to criticize or praise God's command, because this was God speaking, and the deep silence, and in the deep silence, he could hear that voice. Clearly, and then later on become one with So what does it mean to cultivate an interior silence so that we can hear God's voice better? I remember one day I was walking on the beach with my dad, and I asked him if he had ever been baptized. He said no. I then thought, I've been ordained. I can baptize him right now on this beach. Several minutes later, I picked up a big shell, and after I had built up the courage, I asked him, Do you want me to baptize you now? He then, he then looked me straight in the eyes and said, Maybe, but have you been silent enough? I was shocked. At St. Andrews, we delve into the spiritual practices of silence. During our monthly contemplative services, we sit in silence for seven minutes. 
at these services, an attempt is made to find out who we are before our thoughts and feelings. But I find these services are also helpful because they reset, reset me. That is, by letting go of my ego's needs, I am infused with an ability to see and hear God better. Through melodic recitations, beautiful music, prayers, and the stretched out church space, we sit hoping to reconnect with God, and in, and in achieving that, be put on a mission track so that we can help others who are seeking that same connection. Our Gospel reading in Matthew talks about the rewards that doing mission can bring to those that engage in it. But I think carving out a silence in whatever spiritual practice that enables that is so important because it gives mission clarity and purpose. In concluding, let us pray. Dear Lord, in our oftentimes jaded, postmodern, colonialist, and fear-laden world, where it is argued there is nothing new under the sun, and that our Western ideas should not be confused necessarily as objective or universal, Give us hope. Help us, Lord, to at least imagine a better world. Because we have your Son's identity. An identity gifted and guided by the Holy Spirit and the voice of your Son within the Gospels. May we always take the time to make